Now, Romans 7 seems pretty straightforward. It's about the Christian struggle against sin. But the more you dig into it, the more complex it becomes. For starters, it seems to be more about the law of God than it is about my own personal struggles. Also, Paul speaks about himself quite a bit. But at what part in his life is he referring to? Is it before he was a Christian or after he became a Christian? You know, there are so many opinions on this chapter and how to interpret the different sections. Scholars, theologians, Bible teachers, pastors disagree on what Paul is teaching here. So I'm going to do my best to give you an overview. At a couple of points, I'll give you some alternatives, uh, alternative ways of interpreting it. Uh, But this does mean that you guys are going to have to do some hard work today. So I hope you're ready to do that, that you're feeling refreshed and ready to get into it. To help you out, though, it would be good to have this big idea in your mind. I think this is kind of an idea that most people would agree on. Romans 7 is about how the law is good but unable to make you good. We can swing between two extremes when it comes to the law of God. One is to say that you know, we need law to make us good enough for God. And the other extreme is to say, well, law is bad and should be rejected at all costs. I want to say, well, the law is good, but it's unable to make you good. So we need to understand the true nature of the law, but also the true nature of ourselves. So we're going to jump into the first six verses of Romans 7, and they kind of act as a bridge between chapter 6 and this new chapter. And they speak about how Christians have died to the law so that they can belong to Christ. We're not going to cover these verses in detail today. To put it simply, Paul argues that the law of marriage binds a couple until one of them dies. In a parallel way, the law of God can bind someone as long as they are alive. This is why we need to die with Christ. And then have a look at verses 4 to 6 in your Bible or in the insert in your welcome card. I'll read them out. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we are in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So here's a question. Is Paul saying that the law is bad? After all, it arouses sinful passions. It leads to death. Is Paul blaming the law for our sin problem and for the fallenness of this world? Well, Paul's answer is no. And that's what he demonstrates in the rest of this chapter. He starts by arguing that, The law reveals sin to me and reveals sin in me. This is point two of our outlines. I'm actually going to spend a bit more time here. So first have a look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And now have a look at verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death 
so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. So the first thing Paul is saying here is that the law enables us to identify sin. You know, we can commit sins, we can do the wrong thing without even knowing. In fact, we might think that we're doing okay in life until someone points out the law to us. Uh, Not that long ago, we used to use things called video recorders. Some of you may have seen them in your grandparents' houses. And it was a way to tape a TV show onto something like this, a video cassette. How amazing is that? And you could watch the TV show later on. Now, I had a VCR for years, and I taped heaps of Star Trek. Exciting, right? And I would watch these episodes over and over again, watch them with mum and dad and my brother. It was very exciting to have this big, growing library of Star Trek videos. But then one day in the early 2000s, I learned that it was illegal to tape things off TV and to keep it. It was so shocking, especially because you could go to the shops and buy VCRs designed specifically for that purpose. Now, is the law the bad guy in that situation? Well, no, certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I would not have known that I was robbing people of their royalties by making illegal copies. You see, law can play a positive role in instructing us, in helping us to recognise sin. But it becomes more personal because it also exposes the sin within us. Have a look at verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting, for apart from the law, sin was dead. So in verse 7, Paul says that the Lord taught him about coveting because it said, you shall not covet. In verse 8, he refers to this as a commandment. And so in case you didn't pick it up, he's talking about the 10th commandment. This is what Exodus 20, verse 17 says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So this is the final of the Ten Commandments and the Israelites tended to summarise it as you shall not covet. Paul is saying here, this is actually a good command. It's great to have a law that identifies what coveting is and tells you not to do it. You shouldn't long after your neighbour's wife or servant or donkey or Star Trek video collection. But the problem is, as soon as the law said that, Paul found himself wanting to break the law. Covetous desires were fanned into flame by sin. And so rather than the commandment actually helping Paul, it evoked a sinful response. See, the law doesn't just reveal what sin is, it reveals the sin in us. It exposes our sinfulness, it brings out our sin, it stirs up our sin. And I bet you can think of examples where being given a law or a rule simply stirred up a desire that you didn't realise you previously had. Parents say to the little kids, don't touch the TV screen because you know they get those dirty finger marks all over it. But as soon as you say don't do that, of course the kids are going to touch the TV screen. A wife says to her husband, don't eat those brownies, I've cooked them for the children's lunches for school. 
And suddenly all the man can think about is eating the brownies. And even though he's not hungry, he eats some of them. It's a true story. Confession time there. (laughs) A guy says to his friend while they're at the shops, Hey bro, don't look, but there's a really hot girl over there. And even though he's been told not to look, he can't help but look now. A girl says to her friend, I know you've spoken to Jackie, but I don't want to hear what she's got to say. It's just gossip. So now, of course, she wants to tell her what Jackie said. You see, the natural inclination of the human heart is to rebel, to go against rules, to cross the line. And you know why? Because if you're not allowed to do something, it must be because it's really, 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 really good. So the law doesn't just reveal what sin is. The law can awaken sin within us. Have a look at verses 9 to 12. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. So the first thing to clarify here is that Paul means the law of Israel given by God through Moses at Mount Sinai. That's why he quotes the 10th commandment. Also, he describes this commandment as being intended to bring life. You see, only God's law can do that. Obeying commandments about copyright will not bring you eternal life. Trust me. And this commandment is described as holy, righteous and good. That means it's divine in origin, it's fair, it's reasonable, there's nothing wrong about it. Now this is a useful piece of information to store away in your mind for later on. When Paul uses the word law in this chapter, he nearly always means the law of Israel that God gave to the nation after he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. So the law is not bad. It's a good thing and was intended by God to bring life. But it hasn't worked out that way, has it? And it's all because of sin. You see, the second thing to clarify is that sin exploits the law by causing us to sin and then uses the law to condemn us. This is what Paul means by verse 9. The law gave sin an opportunity to stir up rebellion in Paul and thus he became a lawbreaker who deserved death according to that law. Now, does this mean that the law is sin? Certainly not. The law reveals sin. Now, you wouldn't blame an x-ray machine for revealing that you have a broken bone. It's just showing you what's already there. But the tricky thing about sin, about the law, is not just that the sin is exposed, but then sin can use that law to stir up even more sin. It's as if you know, the x-ray machine broke some bones then. It kind of doesn't quite make sense. But the, the sin can make use of the law the good law, to make bad things happen. It has a negative impact on humanity. It was meant to bring life, but all it can do is bring death. Now hang on. Here's a question. How could Paul have ever been alive apart from law? If he was born as a Jew, then when would he have ever been living apart from law? 
And also, didn't we see back in Romans 5 that all people are born in Adam and therefore they're all under the rule of sin? How was Paul ever alive in the spiritual sense? You know, these are questions that have long troubled readers of this passage, from the average Christian right through to scholars. And it all hangs on who Paul is talking about. Who is the I? Now, this is going to get a bit complicated, so if, if you don't track with me, that's okay. I'll let you know when we finish this section, you can jump back on the train. So, there are four main interpretations of who Paul might be referring to. You'll see them in your outline. And the first is the most straightforward one. That's how most people take it. It's talking about Paul. But as we've just said, at what time was Paul alive apart from the law? Maybe he's talking about his younger days, before he properly knew the law of Israel. Yeah, he was naive and unaware of his sin and the law. And, but then when he became a man, you know, he took responsibility, he took on the yoke of the law. But it's kind of an odd way to think about a Jew because we know that the Jews were raised always being taught the law. So maybe the next option is better. Some people say that Paul's actually talking about Adam and kind of identifying with Adam. After all, he's the only man who could be considered truly alive before the commandment came. And then once God said, do not cover that fruit, sin sprang to life in the form of the serpent and acted in a way to condemn Adam to death. But then Paul does seem to be specifically speaking about the law of Israel and not just a command that was given to Adam in the garden. So perhaps the eye of this passage is Israel. Could be Israel thought of as a corporate unit, a single identity and the people were alive in one sense, weren't they? Because they'd been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They'd been brought to new life. They were made a new people. They were living to God. He brought them to Mount Sinai. But then he gave the law to them. And they realized just how sinful they were. And they were condemned to death by their own actions. And it seems like a pretty good parallel to what Paul is describing. But how can Paul say, I when he's talking about a group of people who lived centuries before he did. And so the fourth option is that Paul's just talking about people in general. You know, everyone in general, but no one in particular. You know, it's hard to find an exact match, so perhaps Paul's just speaking about everyone in a sense. However, the details are quite specific, I think, and they don't actually apply to everyone. Well, godly Christians hold to each of these four positions and even a mix of these positions. I personally find the most compelling case is put forward by someone like Douglas Moo in his commentary. And he points out that the two main determining factors are that Paul's talking about the law of Israel and he's talking about a decisive coming of the law that led to death. So here's my suggestion. You'll see it in the outline. I think we should go with a combination of one and three so that Paul speaks of his personal solidarity with corporate Israel in receiving the law at Mount Sinai. This enables Paul to have once been alive apart from the law before the law was given. Now, this might seem like a really bizarre idea to you and you think I'm just twisting things to say that Paul could say I and mean people living a long time ago. But let's remember the context of Romans 7. We've spent weeks talking about representative heads, corporate identities, union with others, being in Adam or in Christ. 
So is it actually that hard to think that Paul, a faithful Jew, would see himself as having somehow been present at Mount Sinai with the people? He was making that promises with his ancestors. But even today, when Jewish people celebrate the Passover, they say, I was a slave in Egypt. See, their identity as an Israelite creates solidarity with their ancestors. And so when the law came at Sinai, it revealed Israel's sin, including Paul's sin, and the nation, along with all future Jews, found that the commandments brought death rather than life. That's just my suggestion. You can think about how you would understand it. So if you've tuned out for a bit, if you found that a bit hard, uh, we're going to stop there, that's okay. Now it's time to jump back on the train and let's keep heading through the passage. Uh, We've seen that law, rather than solving the sin problem, increases the sin problem. And so what we'll see next is that the law can't then do anything about this. See, the law cannot empower me to obey God. And if you're paying attention, you might see in the outline that I've put talking marks around the words me. uh, And maybe you've twigged now that's partly because, well, maybe when Paul says I, he's talking about his own experience. So it's directly relevant to him, but only indirectly relevant to me. We've got to be careful that we don't read a one-to-one connection between what Paul says and our own experience. Hopefully that'll become apparent as we work through. So our next big point, the law cannot empower me to obey God. And Paul's first idea under that is that humans are unspiritual with a sinful nature. Look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. You know, again, Paul's saying that the law is good. It's heavenly in origin. So the problem is not the law, it's Paul himself. Paul is unspiritual. In fact, the word that he uses there could be translated as fleshly. It's the exact same word that appears in verse 5 as the flesh, or in verses 18 and 25 as the sinful nature. Sometimes this word simply means earthly, frail, mortal. Other times it means sinful, fallen, rebelling against God. And I think it actually means the latter in this case. You see, the reason the law cannot empower me to obey God is because of the flesh, because of the sinful nature which draws me to sin. The law cannot overcome this. And there's also the problem of sin itself, because sin prevents us from obeying God's law. Have a look at verses 15 to 20. As Kirsty said, this was a bit of an inspiration for Dr. Zeus, perhaps. See if you can follow the argument. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I, want, if I, do, what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. This is tricky stuff, isn't it? To try and make it easier for you, here's what Paul is basically saying. He hears the law, and the law tells him to do good. 
And on one level, Paul wants to do that good. But he ends up doing the opposite. Instead of doing good, he does what he hates, he does what is evil. So Paul is saying this is because of sin living within him. Yet this is not some kind of alien invader controlling Paul. Rather, it's connected to his sinful nature. Sin is at home within Paul because of his flesh. Sin is part of who Paul is because of his flesh. Our sin, our flesh, makes the law powerless. In fact, our sin wages a war within our flesh. Check out verses 21 to 23. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So Paul's describing an internal conflict, an internal war. And part of his mind, his will, wants to obey the law. But then there's this law of sin, or perhaps we could say the principle of sin is more powerful so that he can't actually do what he wants. That's what causes Paul to cry out in verses 24 and 25. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. It's only Jesus' death on the cross that can break the power of sin within us. The law can't do it, but Jesus can. That's what we've been studying for weeks now, isn't it? Now, as we read through this, we need to ask again, who is the I that Paul mentions? I mean, maybe you don't think you need to answer that question, but I think it's an important one to answer. And this can get complicated. So for your benefit, I've put together a, a table, a chart, with some extra information. It's up on the Welcome Hub. You can grab, grab the copy of that paper uh, afterwards. So in identifying the I of this particular passage, there are three main interpretations. And the first is that Paul is speaking as a non-Christian, as the unregenerate man who's not born again, who hasn't been saved by trusting in Jesus. And the strength of this view is that Paul does sound a bit like a non-Christian when he speaks about being a slave to sin and he's incapable of doing good. He says nothing good lives in him and he makes no reference to the Holy Spirit. And finally, he pleads to be rescued from this body of death. That's one possible view. The second view is that Paul is speaking as a Christian, as the regenerate man who's been born again, been saved by faith in Jesus. And the strength of this view is that Paul does sound like a Christian at places when he says that he delights in the law in his inner being. He speaks about wanting to do good, which doesn't sound like a sinner dead in their sins. So he's speaking as a Christian in need of help, which leads to chapter 8, which speaks of the Holy Spirit and how he offers the help that we need in the Christian life. Now, the third view is that Paul is describing a half-Christian, perhaps a regenerate person who's still relying on their own efforts, maybe relying on the law. They could be an immature Christian. 
Now, there's pretty much zero support for this idea. That's actually a popular one in some circles. So I'm going to raise it with you now so you can see why it's wrong. You may have encountered people who speak about carnal Christians versus spiritual Christians. I don't know if you've ever heard that. And so carnal Christians are supposedly the ones described by Paul in these verses. They're believers who, yes, they're saved, but they're very worldly in how they live. You know, they're kind of still in bondage to the law. Maybe they don't even have the Spirit or they don't have a full experience of the Spirit yet. They're kind of still living like the old person even though they're saved. And so they need to go on to the second level of the Christian life, maybe a second baptism by the Spirit, a second blessing, and then they can break through, get rid of the law, and they can live the free life and start to live without sin. I don't know if you've ever heard that kind of argument before, but the danger of this view is that the Bible knows no such thing as two categories of Christians. You're either spiritual or you're not a Christian. And this kind of idea can put a lot of pressure on people. It can put pressure on Christians who do struggle with their sin going, well, maybe I'm not a full Christian yet. Maybe I'm not all the way there yet. And also when it puts the emphasis on what you do, there might be some Christians who go, well, I'm doing pretty well in life. I'm better than that slob of a Christian over there. So I must be a spiritual Christian. I can just relax now. This view is unhelpful because of where it leads you. So we're just dealing with the first two options. Which one do you think is correct? Well, again, it's really hard to know. (laughs) And in the end, you may not be 100% convinced with either option. So I'm going to put forward my suggestion. You can see what you think of that. I believe that Paul is speaking as his previous self, as an unregenerate Israelite, who knew God's law, but couldn't keep it. This is how Paul The Pharisee in his past life, even then, he could delight in the law. Now, many won't agree with me on this position. Tim Keller doesn't agree with me in his commentary and that breaks my heart. And you're free to disagree with me too if you like. But I'm going to give you some some reasons why I think this fits best with the context. First of all, you might notice in verses 7 to 13, Paul uses past tense verbs. But then from verse 14 onwards, he uses present tense verbs. So people argue that the first part's pre-Christian Paul and the second part is Christian Paul. However, these two sections flow in from verses 5 and 6. And verse 5 mentions living in the realm of the flesh and verse 6 speaks of being released to serve in the new way of the Spirit. And note that he mentions the Holy Spirit. Now, I think both sections in Romans 7 are describing the experience of verse 5 because there's no mention of Paul's conversion in between. There's no mention of a change. There's no mention of the Spirit. I think the description of verse 6 comes down in chapter 8. And so, therefore, the past tense verbs are describing the deep past when he was killed by the law at Mount Sinai in solidarity with his people. And the present tense verbs are speaking about his daily experience, what it was like for Paul as an unregenerate Jew. And that's why verse 25 speaks of his need for salvation. Secondly, while it's possible that Paul could be speaking as a Christian, I think it could lead to a problem. See, it implies that a Christian can never do the good that God requires, that a Christian can be a slave to sin, that a Christian can be unspiritual. 
that a Christian can be controlled by the sinful nature. That's just not true of a born-again person. We're set free from sin. That's what chapter 6 is all about. We can do the good that God wants, even if we do it imperfectly, even if we do it infrequently, and even if we do it with great internal struggle. We are able to please God at times. Thirdly, people might argue, well, an unregenerate person would never delight in God's law and want to do good. That's why I think it's helpful to think of Paul here as an unregenerate Israelite. He's part of the people of God. He's been brought into that special covenant relationship. He's got the privileges and blessings that go along with being a Jew. And so he heard the law. He kind of loved it. He goes, yeah, that sounds good. I'd like that. But his problem was that he relied on the law to make him right with God. And he found that it never brought him peace. So I know that was pretty quick. That's a bit of an information dump. Uh, Those are some of the arguments that persuade me that Paul is speaking of his past self as an unregenerate Israelite under the law of Israel without the Spirit. And so he was unable to obey God because of his sinful nature and slavery to sin. If you've got questions about that, please do come and talk to me later. I'd love to talk about, about that with you. Right, let's refocus now. We're going to wrap this up. Application time, what does this mean for us? If you've wandered a bit, if you're not sure where I'm going, jump on the train, we're heading to the last station. We've seen that this chapter is primarily about the law of God. The law is good, but it's unable to make us good. And so what are the lessons then from the law of Israel in Romans 7? Well, the first is that laws, ethical codes and life principles cannot make you good on the inside. You see, even God's good, perfect law cannot do that. So we mustn't think that we could come up with our own imperfect systems of rules to follow and that somehow will make us good people. When it comes to changing bad habits, fighting temptation, leaving behind bad deeds, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we just need the right system. We need the right rules to make it happen. But there are three dangers with this type of thinking. The first is, and this happened to me a lot before I was a Christian, is that we might be crushed when we realise just how not good we are. The second is that as we apply rules and principles, we might just change the outside. And so we look different, but really we're still sinners. We're just respectable, sophisticated sinners who know how to play the game well. And the third danger is that we might become hypocrites because we come up with our system of rules, but the standards are so low that, of course, we think we can keep them. We trick ourselves into thinking that we're good when we're not. You see, Romans 7 reveals that the problem is inside of us, within our very nature. And so no external laws can change that, no rules. And so if you're here today and you're not a, not a Christian, then you need to look at verse 24, you need to take that in. You are a wretched man or a wretched woman. And I'm sorry if that's pretty full on, but that's what Paul says. And it's because of the state you're in. It's a state that I used to be in because... We're helpless without Jesus. We cannot make ourselves good enough. We can't make ourselves good enough for our own standards, let alone God's standards, and we just feel wretched. And so if you're not a Christian, the answer is not to try harder. It's not to come up with better rules, not to come along to church and pick up some tips and morals and then you can go away and be a better person. 
The answer is, you need to be rescued from this body of death. You need to join yourself to Jesus in faith so that his death becomes your death. His life becomes your life. You receive forgiveness, the gift of the Holy Spirit and transformation within. That's what you need. If you are a Christian, well, first of all, remember that you're no longer a wretch. Not because of what you've done, not because you've made the right decision, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And so the key verse for you is verse 6. You have been released from the law as a means to changing yourself on the inside. You can now serve in the new way of the Spirit because He is the one who transforms you on the inside. The second lesson from the law of Israel in Romans 7 is that God and His law are good. We are the problem. The main objection that Paul's addressing in chapter 7 is that, well, the law of Israel must be bad if it condemns people. And if that were the case, if God gave bad laws that just killed people, then God himself would be bad, right? The law of God frustrates those who are aware of their own failings because it reveals that they can't save themselves. And so they shake their fist at the God who would give rules that no one can keep perfectly. He seems harsh or short-sighted or spiteful or perhaps just naive. But Paul reminds us that the problem is not God and his law. The problem is our fallen nature, our hearts. And so we can maintain that God is good and his law is good. God actually gives the law to reveal sin to us. But he doesn't just stop there, does he? Because he also gives his son to die for us. How good is that? He provides a way for us to be changed, saved, healed, restored, reconciled to him. And so even as Christians, we can learn lessons even today from the law of God as we read the Bible. Because we see the character of God revealed in these commandments. He is just. He is holy. He is merciful. He is loving and generous. He genuinely cares about the people he's created. God is good. And the third lesson is that the battle against sin is hopeless without the death of Jesus and the help of the Holy Spirit. I believe this passage shows us the helpless plight of those who are outside of Christ. Even the Jews who were kind of in a special relationship with God but didn't have saving faith. No matter how much they might want to please God, They are slaves to sin and cannot do the good they want to do. This is not the case for Christians. The battle against sin is not hopeless because we have the death of Christ which liberates us. And as we'll see in chapter 8, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us. I'm going to be honest. The last time I preached on this chapter, I upset a lot of people because this is one of their favourite passages about the struggle of the Christian life, struggling with sin. One woman in particular objected quite strongly in front of the whole congregation and said that she felt like I had robbed her of any comfort in the face of her failures. So let me reassure you, there are plenty of other passages that speak about how we are failures. There are plenty of other passages that bring us comfort in the face of our struggle with sin, are the passages that talk about how we're meant to encourage and help each other and look to Christ. I just don't think this passage is one of them. So I've listed some of those other verses in your outline. You can look them up and enjoy reading them and be encouraged. 
I think the point of this passage is to help you see that the battle against sin is hopeless on your own. The law is not the way to bring about internal change. It reveals sin to me and in me, but it cannot empower me to obey God. We need to be delivered through Jesus Christ. And then we can live a spirit-empowered life that pleases God. Yes, it will be hard, but it won't lead to the sort of despair that's voiced in this chapter. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for your word. Uh, We thank you for this chapter that even though it's tricky, there are some simple ideas that the law is good, but it cannot make us good. And so help us to not look to external rules to make us better, but help us to look to Jesus and his spirit who changes us from the inside out. Amen.